Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I had been thinking for a while about doing a college basketball podcast. This is around the time that I like to do it, and my favorite guest for that is Sam Vecini, now of The Athletic, specifically the field house of The Athletic, and doing great work over there, and one of my favorite podcast guests, and we had a lot to talk about. We spend about half the show talking about the real top end of this draft, the players that can go number one and getting you all familiar with them, re-familiarizing myself with some of them. I'm lucky enough to have seen a lot of these guys in person. And then we get into a lot of other topics, you know, sleepers, the way the league is kind of going, the, the strengths and weaknesses of this class, and a little bit on how the FBI investigation that is rocking college basketball right now, how that affects the draft. We don't really talk about the mechanics of it, but we talk about that. And this episode is brought to you by three awesome sponsors, Harry's Razors. They're back now. Thrilled to have them as a sponsor. And you can try out their shave set for for free other than with shipping. You just have to pay for shipping. And that's, you know, with a razor and shave gel and everything. I'll go into more detail. Harry's.com slash real GM DraftKings. You can try out fantasy basketball today. Go to DraftKings.com and then use the promo code real GM. You can get entered in some big money contests. It's awesome to do that. And then greats. Greats. You can find amazing shoes for a fair price. And I, I love the ones that I have. G-R-E-A-T-S dot com. Promo code RealGM gets you 15% off. And then they have free, no risk returns and exchanges. So you can check it out. And Podcast with Sam runs, I think it's about an hour 40. And as I said, we go through a lot. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm always happy to come on, Danny. It's always good to get a chance to chat with you. You are the busiest human who works in maybe basketball writing. So it's always good to get a chance to talk with you and bounce ideas off of you. Anything that I can do to become smarter is good. And generally, I become smarter by talking to you. I appreciate it. And you and I have not spent much time either on this show or just in our own conversations talking about the 2018 draft because we spent so much time on 2017. Since the college season is about to start, the pro season just started, I wanted to do a podcast with you on that. And the best place to start is something that, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like this year, one of the unusual characteristics of it is at this point in the process, there are a lot of different guys who have the possibility of being drafted first overall. There are certainly favorites and there are certainly secondary figures in that, but I've heard the number as high as seven. To me, it seems a little bit closer to five, but how many players have a legit shot at that? Yeah, I think I would go with five. Really, I think I would probably even limit it to three to maybe four. The guys that I have at the top are Marvin Bagley, Michael Porter, Luka Doncic, and DeAndre Ayton. I would also mention Muhammad Bamba as someone, just due to his physical characteristics and how unique his game is, that could maybe reach into that like kind of ceiling if a team that really wanted a defense first center ended up getting the number one overall pick. But I do think that it's really somewhere like four to five at this stage, which is more than what it typically is. 
It is more than than typical, and there are a couple <clears throat> different reasons for that. And one of them is the reclassification. So the guy who I know the least about of this group is Marvin Bagley, because Bagley sure. was originally going to be in the high school class of 2018, and then reclassified to the college class of 20, uh, the high school class of 2017, college class of 2018. If he goes one and done, which we all expect, and he's a Duke. So what is so what is the reason that he could justify being the number one pick? So I think that he is the best high school player that I've seen since probably Anthony Davis. Now, there are some questions on how that's going to translate, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. So what makes him so ridiculous is that at six foot ten with like a seven foot, seven foot one wingspan, he's not like wild long. He is one of the most fluid plus explosive athletes that I can remember scouting. So uh, like athleticism, as we've kind of talked about before, I think on this podcast, you can talk about it like almost as a continuum, right? Like between fluidness and athleticism. Some guys are more fluid. Some guys are more explosive, right? Uh, Fluidness and explosiveness. I'm sorry. Bagley for being as ridiculous of an athlete as he is, for being as high level of an athlete as he is at his size, kind of fits right in the middle of that explosiveness fluid continuum, right? Maybe a little bit more toward the explosiveness size side, but he really is just a unique one-of-a-kind athlete at his size. And where that bears itself out is on the glass, first and foremost. He's one of the better rebounders that I've gotten a chance to scout. His finishing is top-notch. Uh, he, he really is excellent around the basket. Scores mostly with his left hand, which is his dominant hand, but can finish a little bit with the right as well. Can step away and take guys off the dribble with ease. He has a uh, relatively polished for a, like, combo power forward center kind of guy which we'll talk about positionally in a little bit what he can do he has the ability to take three dribbles easy and take a guy off the bounce and throw down in space the jump shot some people were a little bit skeptical of it because his numbers in uh, eybl were not particularly high i want to say he shot like 28 percent from three the jump shot isn't broken it looks fine he took a lot of really really bad shots playing for a team that went something like I think it won like maybe three games in EYBL last year. They basically gave him and his dad and his brother their own team and weren't as talented as everyone else. I wouldn't read a whole lot into the fact that his EYBL team didn't win a lot of games. Again, Anthony Davis's high school team, I think, went like five and 20 in his year in Chicago. So, you know, this stuff tends to kind of even itself out. And basketball, as we all know, is a game based on team talent. In terms of... The questions, though, and I think why people are a little bit lower on him than or at least why some detractors are a little bit lower on him. I think everyone is pretty in on him, but he's a little bit stuck between the four and the five position. Like from a defensive perspective, you might want to make the case that you might want to play a true rim protector with him he's a little bit more comfortable as a weak side you know rotational rim protector than he is as a primary guy who's going to be a deterrent whenever someone is driving uh like inside in terms of the jump shot as i kind of mentioned the jump shot some people believe it's going to translate some people don't i tend to think the mechanics look pretty good as long as he can you know continue to iron those out i think he's going to be fine i get i guess that you could say that in the past He had some motor issues, but I think over the course of the last year, as I've seen him, he's really done a much better job of playing with high energy, high motor, playing hard regardless of 
the setting. And I believe that at the end of the day, this guy is a potential all-star NBA caliber talent, you know, an all NBA caliber player. He's kind of a modern day, like if Amari Stoudemire came up during this basketball environment, I can easily see him being something like a Marvin Bagley, right? Who developed his perimeter game a little bit earlier than he did in his development and being a little bit stuck between spots defensively, but Amari ended up not being a very good defender, but I think we've put a much stronger emphasis on defensive development from a younger age um, over the course of the last few years, given the metrics that are out there now. So uh, I think that Bagley kind of profiles is that kind of potential all NBA kind of talent that it's really going to be hard for me to see a circumstance where he falls out of that top four. And that really is the difference to me for a guy like him, let's say versus Miles Bridges, who I'm sure we'll talk about later is just that idea of, what he could be, the pure ceiling concept of it. And yeah, it's true. Positional value is complicated with a guy like Bagley, where you're not really sure where he's going to be. But that kind of talent is something that you don't really pass on that many times. Maybe you pass on it once or twice, especially with some of the other guys in this class, but you're not going to let him slide down. And with Bagley, one of the challenges in terms of positional stuff is that it looks from what I've heard and a limited amount from what I've seen, like he's going to be too good to really do the center off the bench thing. Like that's an idea that I've, oh, yeah. I've advocated for, for example, with DeMarcus Cousins. I, other than when he's more engaged and he has been a little bit in the early season for the Pelicans, which is great. My ideal rotation for DeMarcus Cousins would be start him, make him the quick hook, bring in another kind of like true five or something like that, and then have him be the backup center too. The fundamental problem with that is it's not something coaches ever do. You know, it's one of those ideas that we have in a vacuum. It's not the way any coaches run their team. And so if Bagley is ideally in that role defensively, you just, you can't price that in because it's not the way these things work. Yeah. I mean, I'm someone who tends to be a little bit more bullish on cousins if he would get to like a competent team building situation, right? Like he's now been in new Orleans, which is the Island of misfit wings. And you know, in Sacramento where good God, that team has taken a decade to figure out how it wants to build. And it does seem to, you know, be on a positive trajectory now, but it it took them way too long to figure out how to build that positive, you know, atmosphere and culture and trajectory and actual, you know, track that they want to go down. So with Bagley, I, I tend to think of things in terms of how difficult is it going to be to build around a player, right? Like uh, I think every player in the optimal situation, given their talent, can reach their ceiling, right? Like I think if you would place DeMarcus Cousins in a situation where you put him with a bunch of really good perimeter defenders who would uh, fight through screens and be, you know, a little bit longer and, and cut off penetration to the paint a little bit more frequently, that would really help get the best out of DeMarcus Cousins. Now, he's never really played in a situation where that's been true. Just, I mean, I know he has Tony Allen right now, but that's just a small perimeter. They don't really have the length to be able to cut down on penetration enough, in my opinion. So I, I think that in every player's every player is capable of reaching their ceiling given the optimal situation and given the optimal talent around them. In Bagley's case, I think it could be more difficult to get the optimal talent mix around him because of that uh, ability to 
maybe not necessarily be a rim protector combined with the ability to not maybe not shoot threes at an efficient level. If he can do one of those two things, you know, if he can become a primary rim protector that uh, can play the five and you can surround him with shooting, he's going to be just a full on all pro. Like I have very few doubts there. If he can become a three point shooter, you can play him with a five rim protector and you can play him, you know, at the four, maybe a little bit more consistently and you can dominate on the glass and you can do a lot of different stuff. And I think that could work. If he doesn't develop either of those, I think that's where it gets a little bit tricky. And, you know, maybe maybe he kind of falls into that like cousins mold of being incredibly productive, but struggling to be built around. At the end of the day, I think Demarcus is a really difficult player to build around. I think Bagley could be that, but it's very early in the process to kind of figure that out. Briefly with Cousins, the Bucks would be a wonderful fit for him, but it's never, ever going to happen just because the, the finances and the assets they would have to give up. But that would be a lot of fun. And actually, incidentally, Jabari Parker and Anthony Davis as a combo would be great, too. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that on Jabari and Davis. I, I don't know that I would. L- I mean, yeah, I kind of would. I would love the Bucks. With DeMarcus Cousins. That, that, you're right. Now that you say that, that would be perfect. It was kind of, I think, what they were hoping to get out of Greg Monroe, except DeMarcus is just so much better than Monroe that it would be a lot easier to kind of make that mix work. Yeah, it's, it's never going to happen. Going to take a quick moment out from the conversation with Sam to tell you about Harry's, a sponsor that I'm thrilled to have back on board with Real Jam Radio because I love their product. And it comes from a very basic idea. They're trying to have a great shave at a fair price. And Jeff and Andy, the founders of the company, I've told this story before, but I think it's so cool. I'll tell part of it now. They were frustrated with the way the razor market works. I am frustrated with it, but they actually did something about it. They bought their own German factory, which had been making blades for over a hundred years. And so they do it all themselves. They do it on house and that allows them to offer their blades at half the price selling directly to you by removing a lot of the the middlemen that could be a part of the process, like a lot of the market disruptors that I'm so happy to be involved with both in my own life and, of course, on the show. I have been incredibly impressed beyond the razors, which are wonderful, and I get a really good shave from them. With the shave gel, a little bit goes a long way, which is something that I really enjoy, and it's something that I... I save like when I'm going on a trip or something like that, if I don't have enough or I make sure that I buy it so I have it in time. And that is a part of the free trial set that you can get. So what you do is you go to harrys.com slash real GM and you get a weighted ergonomic razor handle that, and then you get five precision engineered blades. You get that shave gel they like so much and you get a travel blade cover. So if you're going on the road, you have that with you. And you get all of that for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping, but you get all of those products for free. And so you can check it out for yourself. I believe with razors and with so many other things, it's great to have that opportunity to see if it works for you. But it did for me. Hope that it does for you as well. So again, you go to harrys.com slash real GM and you get that free trial set. All you have to do is cover shipping. It's a $13 value. You can see why over 3 million guys have switched to Harry's. That you could go in a lot of different ways with these guys but the guy who i want to talk about next is the other big man who's in this conversation who i think both of us would probably have fourth or so in this group and we've talked about deandre ayton a fair amount on this show mostly because both of us have seen a fair amount of him i've saw ayton play in high school in in a thing at prolific prep i've seen him play in I think he was he was at Adidas Nations, right? Um, yes, he yeah. was. So One, he was there in twenty 
And then, yeah. and then I think I've even he, and then he just in various things. Aiton is a fascinating player for so many different reasons. And what's crazy is as these guys, you know, they're they're young kids. As they get older, you think they're going to to change and to evolve, and they certainly do in many situations. But the concerns I had about Aiton the first time I saw him back in Napa are still there, and they are his motor, his intensity, and not remotely his physical talent. Yeah, so DeAndre Ayton is maybe the most physically gifted basketball player at a youth age that I've ever seen. I've said this on the podcast, I think, before, but if you were to build a basketball player in a lab, I think that it would look a lot like DeAndre Ayton. I mean, maybe it would look like Giannis, but I, I said that before Giannis, you know, became what he is because Giannis is an alien and I'm not sure we can reasonably anticipate building an alien in a lab. So I think DeAndre Ayton is like the guy that you would build in a lab that is not an alien. You know, he's seven foot tall, seven foot six wingspan. 250 pounds already, you know, has the fluidity to step out and knock down threes, has the power and strength with which to bury guys in the post. He's already a primary rim protector when he wants to be. He's already decent passer who can make plays. He is just he's unbelievable in terms of the physical gifts that he has on a basketball floor. Aiden is also kind of a prototype for the concerns that people have with the AAU system where he was given so much at such a young age because he was such a, you know, phenom, such an incredible gift that he never really, or hasn't to this stage. I mean, I I don't, he hasn't shown it at least maybe he has, maybe he has it somewhere within him, but he hasn't developed the type of motor that will see him play hard consistently that will see him continue to, you know, really just fight when things get hard on the basketball floor. He hasn't been pushed to where he needs to do that because he's so gifted and he could go anywhere from like number one to number 10 or like number 20 in this draft, depending on how the background checks come back and how, you know, how the motor shows in college this year. And, you know, if the skills show as incredibly well as they can, as I think they're capable of, because he really is just that unbelievably gifted. He's the biggest wild card to me in this draft. I could see a circumstance where he asserts himself as the clear number one overall pick because he is just that good. He is just that gifted. I could also see a circumstance where he falls out of the lottery because all the other stuff just doesn't really come back in a way that NBA teams won. That's kind of the you know issue with big men right now. The big man position is so flooded with talent in the NBA that it's just not really worth it for teams to take such a high-level risk at that position uh, so early in the draft right now. It, it doesn't behoove them to do so. I think there's a chance that Aiton shows that he's not a risk at all this year at Arizona. So he's going to be playing under a coach in Sean Miller that's going to get up under his ass and really push him to be the best player he can be. But I, I just don't really know what to do with him right now. He's a really hard guy to gauge from a talent perspective and from a uh, everything else perspective. One way of describing how Aiton is is a story that I just remembered from Adidas Nations in 2016. So he was on a ridiculously stacked team. They were actually known as Team Harden. And it was, you, you'll, hear, you'll hear a lot of these names when you hear about the draft this year. Aiton, yep. Troy Brown, Wendell Carter, Hamadou Diallo, Trevon Duvall, Kevin Knox, Gary Trent, Jared Vanderbilt, and numerous other guys. Like It was a ridiculously stacked team. 
And so you'd be sitting there going, yeah, they're better. They were better than everybody else. Their backups were better than probably any other team at Adidas Nations that year. Yet <laughs> they were behind all the time, either at around halftime or something like that. And then they would blow teams out because they took some of Aiden's personality, which was the, yeah. eh, whatever, we'll figure it out. And it was insane because you see this team full of blue chip prospects on blue chip prospects that kind of took on Aiton's personality. And then, but they also had a lot of guys like Gary Trent that I don't think of that way. You know, no. Trent, Trent is not, he'll, he'll never be what Aiton is physically, but he does. Trent he will to. legit fight you. Like exactly. So Aiton, it can be a little bit contagious and that yep. concerns me as well. And the parallel there, and I'm thrilled with how he's developed is James Harden. Like there were a couple years with the Rockets before Harden really disciplined himself where I feel like the Rockets took a little bit of that passiveness with him and Harden also something that Aiton has a little bit of a problem with is like Harden, wonderful player, MVP candidate, doesn't always fight to get back to the ball if the ball is not in his hands to start the possession. Aiton is that type of guy too where sometimes he just won't battle for a position. He'll just be like, eh, I'm good. And that is incredibly hard to instill in a player. There are people that have tried to do that. And it's also the type of thing that can drive a coach and a general manager and a fan base completely insane. Where, because like you think about the, the players who have that blessing. Think about DeMarcus Cousins. Think about Shaq. Think about LeBron to a point. If those guys were off and on, it would drive people absolutely bonkers. So yeah, we- like you said with Aiton, the contagiousness is a concern in the same way that the contagiousness of Lonzo Ball's game, as he showed at UCLA, was a major positive for his game, right? I, again, like it, it's so difficult to tell at such a young age how these guys are going to develop mentally, right? And I, I think a lot of this, again, I, I think that the AAU system does so much more good than bad, but... In the case of super, super high-level prospects like DeAndre Ayton, he was just given so much at such a young age that it's really hard for me to not think that that didn't play a role in him not having to play hard. And I, I, I just hope it all comes together for him because he really is just like this incredible talent that he could really become like one of the best players in the NBA. Just if he learns to play as hard as he possibly can at all times, that is the ceiling. Like his ceiling is the perfect modern day prototypical center who can shoot threes, who can be a primary rim protector, who can essentially do like something similar to what Joel Embiid is doing now. Like I don't know if he has the outrageous, outlandish ceiling that Embiid has in my opinion, but it's within the realm of like being in that like kind of inner circle of talent, right? I just want him to show it. I just really hope that he kind of shows the will and the wherewithal to do it. That's all I want from DeAndre Ayton at this stage. Playing for Miller will certainly open up those possibilities. I think Miller will really challenge him, which is exciting. But it kind of reminds me of Dwight Howard in Charlotte this year, which is the idea of like, if it doesn't work there, I'm going to be freaked out. I'm going to be really freaked out because he's put in such a wonderful position to succeed. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the, the the Dwight thing is just a mess, I think. But like, uh, and a can of worms that I don't want to go down, but you know, Dwight played so hard for his first you know, what decade in Orlando he's in there. He was in Orlando. What? Maybe not a decade, maybe like eight years, but he was unbelievable in Orlando. He was incredible. And I hope that 
as Aiton matures and, uh, you know, just how you said that playing for Sean Miller is going to, you know, maybe open his eyes and help him. It's going to give us the information we need, I think, because if Miller can't really get up under him and get him to play as hard as what he's capable of, I don't think that any NBA coach is going to want to deal with the hassle of doing it. So I think we're going to find out with DeAndre Ayton this year, you know, what he's capable of. And it's the world if he wants to take it by the hand or it's something similar to, I mean, he's better than JaVale McGee, but it, it could be like a, he could become a you know starter that just kind of does his thing and, you know, doesn't reach that all-star level. It's all so up in the air right now. Yeah, it, it definitely is a challenge. And so two other guys really in this tier to talk about, and let's start with Michael Porter. Porter, somebody that I had heard a lot about before the hoop summit last year sure. and was very, very impressed with his skill level at this point and you know he's not a next level athlete you know he's not the the Blake Griffin at early at Oklahoma or Aaron Gordon type of guy but he's the step down and so much more skilled than those guys were at the same age yeah so with Porter you know I kind of mentioned that like fluidity versus explosiveness scale you know it's six foot ten he is among the more fluid athletes I've seen. You know, he definitely fills more toward the fluid side of that scale, but his ability to create off the dribble because of that body control and because of, you know, the ridiculous hand-eye coordination, that stuff is rare at his size. You know, he was in high school. He's a guy who took a leap really from his junior year to his senior year of high school. Like he was always known as like a top five kid in that class, but he took that next level jump to reaching the elite and becoming like, you know, someone people see as a future NBA all-star over the course of his senior year because he went from being, you know, the book on him was that you could really get up under his skin a little bit and, you know, toughness, I guess, to an extent was a concern, but it's not there anymore. Like he, he showed a lot of toughness over the course of his last year in high school. And that showed in the way that, you know, you look at his shot chart from high school and it was unbelievable. He was like a 40% three point shooter was finishing like right around like 65, 70% inside and had a mid range game as well. He has a really good two dribble stop and pop game that he can bust out at any point. So I'm a really big fan of what Michael Porter brings from a skill perspective. I'm a big fan of what he brings from, you know, a talent perspective, from, uh, you know, a perfect modern day stretch four perspective that allows you to play big while, you know, his skill set retains the small ball sensibilities. You know what I mean? So I think that he's, again, just a super polished, super high level prospect that I think is going to ball out at Missouri this year and be pretty tremendous. He, in some ways, is a throwback not to a type of player that ever existed, but to the type of forward that was offensively gifted that we saw before LeBron and Giannis and Ben Simmons, where I still want a point guard on the floor with Michael Porter. Like, I don't think he's replacing that guy. It's just that he works within that paradigm. That part of it might actually be closer to Kevin Durant, where you would want it. You always want a point guard there. And I actually think for most teams in most situations, that's easier to build around. We talked about that a little bit with Bagley. With Porter, whether, you know, I think he's probably going to eventually be a four. There's the old, I think it's Arnovitz, the chestnut, that if you're wondering whether a guy's a three or a four, he's a four. And I think that's largely true with Porter. 
but he doesn't really have much of that downside. And I think you could switch him around a little bit if you had to. And so with Porter, it's largely a plug and play thing because the guys who do what he can do are rare enough and easy enough to work with in the NBA system that he can do it without too much trouble. Yeah, I think he's a four. Like, I think it's like obvious that he's a four. I, I tend to disagree with such like a blanket statement like Arnavit says. Yeah, I, I think Kevin's awesome. Like, he's super, super smart. But I, I just don't like throwing like a blanket statement around because there are just so many different lineup constructions that you can use now to bring out a player's elite talents. To me, the best players that Porter is going to play with are like I don't know if he's going to be an awesome defender uh, on the perimeter yet. Like I, I don't know that he has like the hyper good lateral quickness to where he can stick with those guys. So I think that you're probably going to want to play him with some guys who you know kind of cut off penetration and, and kind of play tough on that side of the ball. I will say also he's a really really good rebounder. He's a really tough offensive rebounder, particularly defensive rebounders. Maybe, maybe not. I think he'll probably be able to get like a 20% defensive rebounding rate, like nothing insane, but a good number. If that if that's what he can bring, that's enough, especially whenever you add in the offensive rebounding that he's going to bring just by having a nose for the basketball. That, that kind of stuff plays best at the four, though, especially in a day and age where teams are crashing the offensive glass a little bit less in order to kind of protect their transition defense. So I think to get the most out of his skill set, you're going to want to play him with more perimeter-based players as opposed to more interior players. The other reason I think you'll want to do that is because of this question that we're dealing with a little bit more now with Giannis, which is especially why I like Giannis at the four, is that Will Porter be best defended at the NBA level by fours or by threes? And will he be good enough that he will force the opposing team to make that choice for it? You know, like basically, because like that's the thing with Giannis. It's like this, this was also the old Paul George at the power forward thing. Giannis is so good that you're going to put your best perimeter defender on him. It doesn't matter what his thing is, but what that means in the practical terms is, because most teams, their best perimeter defender is a three, not a four, is that means that you're putting a power forward on the other guy. And so that can be really good. Yeah. That was C.J. Miles that benefited from that. Right now it's Chris Middleton or Tony Snell, depending on how they're defending the Bucks. Yep. Porter, those two questions are going to kind of have to be proven a little bit. But my instinct, and this is where he could really drive some value, is that if teams feel they need to put their three on him, they need to put their Kawhi Leonard, they need to put you know whoever that guy is, Aaron Gordon, if we're talking about the Magic, if they need to put that guy on him, he derives a lot more value because the other player is going to have a huge advantage. Yeah, I, I think that I agree with you there. Um, ha- having these, you know, six foot ten players that have wing offensive skills, but you know, questionable defensive skills, like a Paul George, like a Michael Porter, like a Giannis, like a whoever, they, they do tend to bring out matchup issues in opposing teams. And you know, the, you're right. That's a place where incredible value can be derived. I think that. You know, like you said, we saw it with C.J. Miles last year. We see it with Tony Snell and Chris Middleton this year. Uh, Middleton himself, for instance, was a four in college at Texas A&M. Like he, he was a guy that could really take advantage of matchups like that then. And now he's taking advantage of them again. And, you know, I, I think with Porter, I hope that he gets to the level where – at his size, he can take advantage of smaller defenders in the post. I think he does have relatively decent footwork there. And then as well as, uh, you know, really, really 
you know, take guys off the bounce if they end up putting bigger guys on them. I, I think that that kind of matchup nightmare is the situation that or is really the use that Porter derives from his skill set and guys like Porter derive from their skill set. Sam and I still have a lot of material to work through, but I wanted to take a little bit of time to tell you about DraftKings. This is a great time to get involved in DraftKings basketball. The season is just starting. There's a lot going on. And something that really excites me about it, as somebody who is just getting into daily fantasy, both in basketball and also in football, is that there are ways for people like me and like some of you to get into it where you can do beginner and casual contests where you can be at people of your skill level. And so the function, for those of you who are familiar with daily fantasy in various forms, it's you can do it through that kind of normal style where you take eight players, each of them has a salary, and then you see how it goes. And so it's great because you don't have to worry about the whole season. And this year in particular has been sidetracked early on by lots of injuries. People who have Gordon Hayward, who drafted Jeremy Lin, their seasons are in a very different place than they would have been. But with Daily Fantasy, yeah, there's a chance that that player is going to go down on that night. But you have the whole other universe to work with. And also you don't have to worry about one of your friends getting the number one pick and drafting the guy you always want to have. If you want to have LeBron James, Steph Curry, Giannis on your team, you can have them whenever you want. And that's a really satisfying thing. And you could check it out for yourself. There are so many options in terms of what you want to do on DraftKings, what kind of what kind of competition you want to have. And as I said, the levels are something that's very important to me. So how you check it out is you go to DraftKings.com and then you use the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, to play for free with your first deposit and you can go after $10,000 in total prizes. And again, it's REALGM, it's a promo code, only at DraftKings. Disclaimer, there's a minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility, eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. We can transition into the other guy who is entirely different from everybody we've talked about. And that's, oh, yeah. And that's Luka Doncic. And so with Luka, there are two really, really big questions for me with him, both of which got answered to a point in Eurobasket, but... Uh, and and now in you know now that he's playing for Real. I was going to say like I, I think his play at Real like this year so far has been probably even more impressive than Eurobasket. I will be spending some time at some point in the near future doing that. I actually have been toying with. I have to ask like Seth or whoever if this is going to be okay. I'm thinking about doing a Doncic day and going through myself on Synergy or whatever else and just watching footage and then it, instead of maybe I'll do a podcast on it maybe with you or just write. You know I I haven't done prospect analysis in a long time, but he's a guy that's worth it and so that gets into the two questions one question is who does he defend who can he defend at the nba level and then the second one is can he reliably create separation because we know if he can create that separation that he'll be able to use it oh yeah like so if he can create that separation he is definitely an nba all-star the skill level that he has portrayed throughout his like young time as a nba prospect is just unbelievable he is six foot eight he can handle like a point guard. He can pass it like a point guard. His instincts for cutting off the ball are extraordinarily rare. He knows how to create that space off the ball in a major, major way. He does have really, really good ball handling ability. I, I wouldn't say he can handle like a point guard quite yet, 
but he is certainly a guy that with his size grabs and goes in transition and can move side. Like you can, you know, change of pace, change of direction. He has all that stuff in transition, um, has that stuff in the half court as well. But the ultimate question for me is the athleticism. Uh, is he explosive enough to gain that consistent separation? Some guys don't need it necessarily. I think that his teammate on the Slovenian national team, Goran Dragic, has shown that you know it's not a necessity that you need to be able to become an effective creator in the NBA. But I think it's a lot harder whenever you don't have that. He would need to become a Dragic-level ball handler if that was the case, and he's not quite there yet. Uh, not to say he's a bad ball handler because he's not at all. He's a really good ball handler for his size, but there's a difference in being an unbelievable ball handler and being a good ball handler at your size. Yeah, like a- everything that he has shown so far, he's shown himself to be the best European prospect that I think I can remember. The the only one that I think even comes close is Pal Gasol. Pal was, you know, for those who don't really remember that draft, and I, I was certainly young enough as well, and I really only learned or too young and learned this only by looking back. Pal's numbers in uh, like Spain and everything were just obscene in the same way that Luca's are obscene. The question is separation. He's going to be an NBA NBA starter. I have no doubts about that. Like he's just too smart, too gifted with the ball in his hands. He can play too many different roles for an NBA team. Um, He's kind of a perfect small forward, maybe shooting guard even for the modern NBA, given how he can be a secondary ball handler, secondary creator, um, and hopefully can continue to develop as a shooter to where that is a highly consistent part of his game, as opposed to just being one that kind of fades in and out from time to time, you know, over the last two years, I want to say he's right around like the 33% mark in Spain. I think he's a more capable shooter than that, but he needs to get there. At the end of the day, though, I, I think that you're talking about a really safe prospect in terms of being a starter, but one that still has some questions to answer and probably won't be able to answer them until after the draft. Yeah, and and so the other kind of data points in terms of athleticism that are worth, or and kind of his overall game that are worth considering. So he shot over eighty percent the last two years from the free throw line, which sure. is good. And he's been, yeah, as you said, around you know thirty two, thirty three from three from the shorter European line, but not the college line. So that's also important. But what is a little bit concerning on the athleticism front is that he's only been getting, you know, last year it was only about two free throw attempts per game at Real Madrid. It's a little bit higher this year, but they've only played, I think it's like seven games. But so you have those kind of questions about, because, because getting fouled is actually a really good measure of a lot of this stuff in terms of separation. He's also you know, a phenomenal passer and everything else. And what you brought up about him fitting in, in the modern NBA is a really good point because unless he's just so bad a shooter that people help off him, He's going to be able to take advantage of that pressure. And the thing is, the NBA, you know, teams, especially when you think about teams that are bad enough to get Luka Doncic, generally speaking, are bad enough to be around that spot multiple years. And so what that means is maybe he isn't your primary guy. Maybe he isn't your, you know, he's not Ben Simmons. Like Ben Simmons, in terms of offensive role for the Sixers, is a point guard. Like, yes, he is 6'10", but he is a point guard. I'm not sure Luka Doncic is ever going to be that. But 
can he be offensively, you know, not in, not including the shooting, but can he be kind of what Washington wanted with Bradley Beal, where he has the ball in his hands, he can be a steward when you need it, he can run, you know, let's say you get to 10 seconds left on the shot clock and his John Wall equivalent is indisposed, that he can create something? Yeah, I think he can eventually be that guy. And there is an intense value to that especially for a guy who has defensive versatility. And one of the things that I, I've talked about this a little bit before is I like what's the term that I use is reciprocal versatility. So Luka Doncic is not going to be your best defender, but if he no. can defend the worst guy at a couple different positions, that's really valuable too. Yep. Because the association that I use for this long-term is Ron Artest. Ron Artest guarded one to four, sometimes one to five. But the only way that ever matters is if the other players on your team can defend players other than their own position. Because if you have a point guard who can only defend ones, it doesn't matter if Ron Artest can defend that guy because you're not going to put him there or you're going to be sabotaged somewhere else. Like Isaiah Thomas is a great example of this problem. And so I think yep. Doncic will be at that point where it's, you know, it's not that he can do everything himself but that if you build a team in a quote-unquote normal way around him, he will make all of those other pieces make sense. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. I think that versatility isn't as important as game-breaking defensive skill, as you know, making a genuine difference defensively, but I do think that it is a vastly underrated part of being a really good defensive basketball player just because, like you said, it's not even necessarily – well, it, it is exactly what you said, but it's also even if you're not the best defensive player, we kind of see this with Doug McDermott, right? Like Doug McDermott isn't going to tank a team's defense because he's big. You can play him on quite a few different kind of spots depending on the worst teams uh, or the team's worst offensive player. And he at least knows where to be. You know, he's not going to make a difference. He's not going to even be maybe an average defender in the NBA, but he's not going to destroy your defensive scheme. I think Doncic is better than that, certainly. But just having the size and the athleticism, the relative uh, fluidity to move laterally really, really makes a difference in the way that you can affect your team's defense. It's a threshold test, basically, and, and a lot of people can think of this more easily offensively, like with Andre Robertson. So if you are so bad at something that the other team can exploit it through basic strategy, that's a big oh, yeah. problem. That's a big problem. And defensively, Isaiah Thomas is, is big there. You know, the other teams could say, hey, let's get Isaiah Thomas on here or Ennis Canner. Let's get him. We know how to how to get that guy in trouble. Let's just do that a bunch of times. Ryan Anderson is becoming this now, too, with his back issues and everything else. I don't think Doncic is going to be that guy. And as long as you cross that threshold, you're still providing a certain degree of value by not bringing the downside. Yeah, no, 100% agreed. The biggest key is just not being a total liability, not bringing a total liability from an effort perspective or from a physical perspective. As long as you have the dimensions to at least be shifted around and as long as you bring the energy and the motor to be you know, a, an effort-based defender, you're not going to tank a team's defense. Now, that doesn't make you a difference maker from the perspective of building a top 15 defense. You need to still have guys that can be those difference makers, those high impact defenders. But if you're getting a guy for his offensive skill and he can at least provide some sort of resistance defensively, it's a really big piece. Anything else you feel like we need to talk about with Doncic? Hmm. I, I don't really think so. I, I mean, again, like I can't really overemphasize enough the level of production 
of what he's shown in Europe at this stage. And it, he's it playing is against gen- high-level competition. I think that's the other thing. The ACB is the second-best league in the world. Yeah. And Eurobasket, he looked great against national teams. Against, you know, I mean, not every national team is awesome, but definitely, you know, teams were generally throwing out the best they had to offer. And he was thriving in a variety of roles, including Dragic got in foul trouble, so he took on more ball-handling responsibility. He played without Dragic. He played with Dragic. And I was blown away by a kid, a teenager, just delivering in, you know, on it sometimes against rabid crowds, you know, all those sorts of things, like all the pressure cooker type things that you can see in a player. He delivered in a way that we just don't generally get to see for a guy his age. And that's the part that reminded me of Rubio, where Rubio was he was battle tested. He would have been battle tested if he had come straight over, but he was certainly yeah. battle tested by the time he ended up making the jump two years later. Yeah, no, I mean, not only did Doncic not look out of place in Eurobasket playing against men, playing against unbelievable talents, he was all tournament team in Eurobasket. Like he have, I, I think some of this stuff in those cases can be a little bit political. Like I'm not saying he didn't deserve to be on the all tournament team, but there were some other really good players that I think you certainly could have picked ahead of him. 14 points, eight rebounds, four assists a game, really, really good numbers in a tournament like that. Just an unbelievable standout from such a young age. And it's unprecedented within the last 15 years, at least Europe to have a kid this young be this gifted at such a uh, again uh, just just so so unbelievably ready for this moment and so talented to take advantage of this moment the last guy who's in this conversation i would say at this point he's a dark horse for it but there's a reason why he deserves to be in the conversation is muhammad bamba bamba is nate has said for a while that the best call i ever made was rudy gobert and I would agree with I, Nate. I do not see everything in Bamba that I saw in Gobert, but I see a lot more than I've seen in almost anybody. And some of that is the wingspan. He's seven foot nine wingspan would be the largest in the NBA. But also his timing is very good. And when he cares broadly defensively, he is d- destructive in a way that is it's like Anthony Davis. If Anthony Davis were bigger. Yes, that, that's 100% right. Muhammad Bamba is a tricky one. Um, the the funniest quote that I've heard from him from like an NBA executive is that he's like a dinosaur out on the floor. Like, it, And he meant that in a good way. Like he's like a pterodactyl due to his wingspan. Like he just covers such an immense amount of ground that it's impossible to kind of game plan for the way that he affects defenses or affects what you want to do offensively and affects his team's defense. Not only is he an unbelievable rim protector from a timing perspective and from a length perspective, he has every single tool that you could want there. It's the perimeter defense that impresses me a ton as well. He's really fluid laterally out on the perimeter in a way that most seven footers aren't in a way that most of those like hyper long guys aren't. He is like very realistically a NBA defensive player of the year like ceiling. And there are so few guys that you can say that about. Like there might be one every single draft. He's that in this draft. There are just so few guys that have those physical tools that it's impossible not to notice them and to not bring them up immediately. I've seen his motor run relatively hot and cold. Not crazy for an 18, 19-year-old is what it is. I think that 
we're going to learn a lot seeing him play under Shaka Smart this year. Shaka's going to kind of just put him in space and let him do his thing defensively. I think that's going to be a really good system for him. Offensively, there there's some weird stuff there. Like he he's unbelievable at you know being a you know a diver off the pick and roll. Uh, he does have good timing there as well. Obviously, the length and the athleticism plays up there. He's really, really good at catching lobs. He has good hands, which is something that I missed with Gobert uh, off the top. He has really, really good hands when the ball is up around his face, and that's made him such an incredible rebounder and made him such a threat off of lobs. Where Bamba scares me offensively is that he thinks of himself as kind of a perimeter threat offensively, and much in the same way that I think Willie Cauley-Stein tried to be this perimeter threat offensively. I'm worried that Bamba won't ever be efficient enough away from the basket to, you know, kind of offset the incredible gravity that he brings as someone who can just dive to the basket and a point guard can throw it far higher than they can to any other player on the court and he'll catch it and dunk it. That is a very real value that I don't know that his perimeter game is ever really going to like him stepping out on the perimeter is ever going to surpass on a possession by possession basis. You know, hopefully he can develop the jump shot. You know, I've talked to people that have been around him and have trained him and have seen him grow from the time he was in ninth grade, 10th grade up until he is now and the jump shots gotten a lot better. So maybe there is still some room for growth there. I, I just worry that he's going to go away from his bread and butter a little bit more than he probably should this year. It's a ceiling four thing for me. So the ceiling to me is that he can eventually do kind of like what Thon Maker does, where he shoots enough from the perimeter that the opposing center feels queasy about it. And I, I will say this. I'm someone who's not like super duper high on Thon Maker's jump shot. I think it's very robotic and I think that it ends up being a little bit flat. He's improved that a little bit since being in Milwaukee, but I don't think it's there yet. I think Bamba is starting from a much lower point than what Thon did. When I've watched, I've only, again, it's a small sample size watching them in practices. It's at the Hoop Summit. His mechanics didn't seem terrible to me. Like, I, I was looking at it and just, like, his elbow and his feet looked okay. But, again, that's small, small sample size with that. And, and, and especially with a big guy who doesn't have the best form and all that, that can come and go. And that's always a concern. And you're right, though. But so basically the why that's a threshold thing is that if he can scare people a little bit, which Kali Stein absolutely does not, and you're right to bring that up as a floor issue for him offensively, then it becomes a very big negative, and that's a problem. But with Bamba, again, yeah, you're right. The defensive player of the year thing is there. And the other, as a value point, that is so important to consider with these guys is if you can reach the level where your presence alone means that a team has a very good chance of being a top 15 or a top 10 or even a top five defense. That is huge. And I don't know which one of those he fits into. A lot of that is going to depend. We'll see what he does in Texas, what he does his rookie year in the pros and all that kind of stuff. But as you move up that ladder, those are the centers that that stay valuable. And a lot of times those guys have good offensive games. Rudy's gotten so much better offensively. Marcus Gasol has always been a wonderful offensive player. But that allows teams to do so much at the other spots. If you can say, hey, having this guy out there, we're going to defend. And the place you start, if, if there are people who are wondering how valuable that is, look at the 76ers stats last year with and without Joel Embiid. 
with Embiid, they were a very, very good defense. Without Embiid, with almost exactly the same carryover personnel, they were a very bad defense. And that's what a center can do. So, yeah, with Bamba, the key there in, like, the comparison to Gobert is that Gobert has, I would say, a top, like, 5% motor and desire to improve in the NBA, right? The level of growth his game has undertaken and the transformation his body has undertaken kind of proves that, right? Rudy is oftentimes the exception in terms of how these guys develop physically because he, he's just so – he's worked so hard at it. Bamba's a guy that he often plays not super-duper hard. He can look a little bit disinterested on the floor at times. I, I don't know how much that stuff translates to his off-the-floor work, but I will say that like another one of the major concerns with him that I haven't brought up yet is that he has a really thin lower body and – it often hurts him kind of carve out space and that can hinder him on the defensive glass. You yeah. can uh, get hit pretty good on the defensive glass from time to time with him. He's an unbelievable offensive rebounder because he's so good at using his length and kind of running in at the last second and tipping balls out and, you know, finishing above the rim. But, you know, the lower body stuff is a little bit of a concern for me in terms of reaching his ceiling. It is, and that's if you for those who watch Thon Maker on the Bucks, it happens to him all the time that he just gets put, beaten out of the way by stronger guys. And the hope for Bamba in that way is a that he can get stronger, but b offensive rebounding has become such a smaller point of emphasis around the league that he might actually life might get easier for him just because the players that give him trouble are being they're the dinosaurs in the in the other in the negative sense. Sure. Of the and so he might just fall into the right place at the right time. And that will still be a problem because the marginal differences matter too. You know, Rudy Gobert will bump him out of the way. It's not even just the Greg Monroe's and the Ennis Canners. He will be on the smaller side of that for a long time, maybe forever. So that is a concern. So so he's really the last of those, like, really have a, have a decent shot, even though he's a dark horse of going number one. The guy who's at six... In this, in that frame, who I think could definitely go ahead of a, a fair number of these guys, but just probably not number one is Miles Bridges. Miles Bridges, what he yeah. brings is that he doesn't have that pure ceiling of like the best player on a title team to me, but he plays a position of intense value and he plays it in a way that you can put so many other things around him that teams are paying those type of guys. Like when I watch Miles Bridges, I sit there and remember Otto Porter got a max contract. I think Miles Bridges, my expect, my expected value for Miles Bridges is much higher than where Otto Porter is. Yeah, Bridges is one that I think I was a lot higher on in this year's draft than like whenever it was expected that he would declare for the 2017 draft. I, I was really high on him. I think I had him at like number seven by the time that he ended up deciding not to declare for the draft. To me, he's the prototypical kind of connecting wing, right? Like he's going to be big enough and physical enough to where you can play him at the four. He's not going to be a great defender at the four because he's just not long enough, but he can at least get you the rebounding you need and he can help you play perimeter based offense a little bit more. And he's obviously going to help you get out and transition a lot more. You can also realistically play him at the three, his jump shot. It's a major set shot right now. He's not great at shooting on the move. He needs to really just kind of be spotted up and at a standstill for it to work because if you watch it, like it, it's not 
not the most fluid traditional jump shot. Like I said, it's a set shot where I think honestly his feet are a little bit too straight together. Like they're a little bit too parallel whenever he takes them. It's kind of a funky looking shot in a way. I think that he can at least be a weapon in those spot up situations. And he's really, really good at attacking closeouts in those spot up situations because he's so athletic and because he has the requisite ball handling, he can pass it on the move. Um, obviously the finishing is really, really strong because he's probably the best athlete in this entire draft class. So I think that there's a lot to really like about bridges. I don't know that the ceiling kind of what you're saying is super duper high. Like I, I don't know that I would even have him over an auto Porter, to be honest. I, I was pretty high on auto coming into the draft. I think I had him at number two on my board in that draft class in 2013. The, the difference is I think auto's shot is going to be a little bit more, uh, have a little bit more utility. And I think that auto's length gives him a little bit more defensive utility with which to guard big and small. It's always hard to find parallels with, with guys like Bridges because there just aren't that many in the league right now. And so I don't mean this in terms of their game at all, but in terms of the role and kind of concept, the guy I've, I've also been writing a piece on Robert Covington, and I think that's kind of the idea, that he's not the guy of your forwards, but that he makes it he makes life easier on the guy. And so... Yep. So, you know, so so what the problem with that is is like, okay, well, why would you take the supporting piece that high? You know, that that sort of a thing. But if you already have that, like if for whatever reason, if you're like, let's say, nah, the Sixers are a bad example, but like if a team thinks they have that sort of player, or they think they're bad enough that Bridges isn't going to make them good in the next year, then you wait for that that player if they're not available. And so that's why I think he could be advantageous. Whereas at, at center if you don't think that Bamba or you don't think that Robert Williams, who we'll probably talk about a little bit later, if you don't think that they are that level of center, then the value is a lot lower. With Bridges, even if he's not a one, he's still going to be useful to your team. And at the bare minimum, he'll be a key part of your rotation on yep. a rookie scale contract for four years with team control for eight. Yeah, no, I think Bridges is definitely going to be an NBA level player which is a huge asset to get on a rookie scale deal where you can get them for like eight years. But in a draft like this, where the top four particularly have such a high ceiling, it's hard for me to envision bridges as a potential number one. Like, I think he could go like, you know, third, if a team that really needs a wing ends up being third, getting the third overall pick, but the ceilings on these other players are just so incredibly high that getting a guy like bridges while incredibly valuable is a little bit less important to me that's totally fair and i don't want to go through player by player beyond that but so well there's a couple different questions i want to ask but one is of the players that we haven't talked about yet who do you think has a good chance of make the best chance or you know it can be a couple guys if you have it of making it into the top five or the discussion for the top five well i think that we haven't talked about lead guards yet and just by virtue of positional need sometimes you can see teams select a position that they may not necessarily be as in love with well and by virtue uh, of me not liking any of these point guards but that's yeah no i actually like two of them a pretty decent amount like i like i think colin sexton and trayvon duvall are lottery level talents for me sexton hyper hyper quick maybe the most competitive player i've ever seen play basketball that's not an exaggeration. Like his motor runs higher than Josh Jackson's even last year. 
it bears itself out in similar ways to Jackson, sometimes negatively to where it can bubble over. But the aggressiveness that he has is exactly what I want from a guy that's going to run my offense. Really good vision that he showed uh, over the course of the exhibition slash all-star season was something that he hadn't really shown over the course of his EYBL career and high school career. He was always more of a scorer, like mid-range gunner, you know, creator for himself as opposed to that. But I liked the development that he showed as more of a floor general. Ball handling is incredible. Quickness is incredible. Um, quick twitch athlete for sure. Long with a six, seven wingspan. It's decision making and it's, you know, making sure that the aggressiveness doesn't bubble over. Also, his body is hyper skinny, hyper, hyper skinny. And I worry about it filling out. But I, I think that he can be a valuable player as long as all the, uh, you know, off the floor stuff checks out as well. The other worry that I have a little bit with him, and you know his game better than I do, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that I'm a little bit queasy about his comfort and confidence shooting off the dribble, especially from three, because we're seeing that as the mm-hmm. next big game breaker for lead guards, is the players, yeah. Damian Lillard, Steph Curry, ideally, you know, that that's why people like Nate and I are so high on Jamal Murray, is because the idea that he could eventually be that guy. Sexton, I haven't seen that in his game. He's more of kind of the everything but that type of guy where he can he can get separation, but that kind of separation provides less value for him. And I actually have that same other concern, but let's talk about uh, let's talk about Sexton a little bit more. I was going to bring up that I have that same concern about Trevon Duval, but we'll talk about him after. Oh yeah, we'll get to Trayvon. From three, I agree with you. I think he's really, really good at shooting off the dribble in the mid-range. But yeah, I think it's a concern. Absolutely. And I agree with you on... The idea of shooting off the dribble being the most important thing that a lead guard can really bring to the table outside of athleticism. To me, it's even more important than passing now. I I think that why you guys are very high on Jamal Murray makes sense to me. Where Jamal scares me is not having the requisite athleticism and burst to get into the teeth of the defense and create plays consistently, right? Like those are the worries that they can just cripple a career and make you more of a secondary player as opposed to a, uh, you know, all-star level player. And by secondary, like I think Jamal Murray is going to be an NBA starter. I just mean that like maybe not necessarily the guy driving the force all the time uh, in Denver. So I do understand your like of Jamal Murray. I, I just think that the first requisite skill that you have to have as a point guard in today's NBA is the ability to consistently create separation, be it through just unbelievable athleticism or, in Stephen Curry's case, unbelievable ball handling. That is 100% fair. I kind of tilt a little bit the other way now, but it does depend on circumstance. The other reason I like guys that can shoot is because it's a lot easier then to pair them with this kind of this new mm-hmm. generation of guys because there are now bigger players that can handle the ball. We're encouraging it. I also like seeing, you know, get even into some of the basic actions. Like with, I would love to see Anthony Davis run one primary action every half, let's say. I would love mm-hmm. to see that just to see you mess with other teams. And so players like Jamal Murray fit in better with that than players like Colin Sexton. Well, and- you, know, you know what guys like that do, though? Guys who can really shoot it off the dribble. They put pressure on a defense from 27 feet and in to where you have to get picked up 27 feet and in. And 
that just opens up the floor so much. Eric Gordon. Right. It just opens up the floor incredibly for the rest of what your team wants to run offensively. You can see some backdoor cuts. You can see, you know, all sort of different off-ball screen action that can really create plays. There's just a, a lot more open to you in terms of what you run offensively if a point guard has to be picked up at 27 feet versus more like 19 feet, which is what we're going to talk about with Trayvon Duvall in a second here, I think. Duvall is... I think he might just be a guy who's a little bit born at the wrong time because he would, you talked about like how Giannis is like an alien. I think Duvall would have been kind of like that in the eighties because he's big for a one. He's six, yeah. like a six ten wingspan and yep. he moves pretty well for his size. Yep. I worry about his jump shot. I worry a little bit. You might know this better, but I worry about his motor sometimes too. Just mm. he, more on defense. Maybe it's attention. It might not be motor. It might just be attention. Like it just seems like every once in a while he would get lost, but I have trouble seeing how he's going to dominate at the NBA level. I certainly see how he can be a player that an NBA team is really happy to have. But, you know, if we're talking high lottery point guards, you need to have that calling card. And I don't see the calling card for him. Well, the calling card for him is that, you know, along with Miles Bridges, I think he might be the best athlete in this draft. You know, he's really close to that. He's quick twitch, like 40 inch vertical. Really, really great quickness, great ball handling abilities, really creative as well. The kind of guy who can just throw down the most absurd dunks that you will imagine. You know, he's a guy who could legit participate in an NBA dunk contest. The two concerns for Duvall that most worry NBA folks, that most worry me, are the shooting, which, as we mentioned, incredibly important. He can't shoot at all off the dribble right now. Like, I don't think you want him taking a single shot off the dribble. More than that, though, it's the decision making. He makes really shitty decisions with the basketball from time to time. And I, I, it's hard for me to rectify that, I guess. I, I want guys who make good decisions with the basketball. Like, from an athletic perspective and from a creativity perspective, he's kind of like, He's kind of like if Markel Fultz was even more explosive. He Well, he's kind of like a more explosive Markel Fultz with what Fultz is doing now with the inability to shoot because his shoulder is messed up or, you know, he's shot like his confidence is shot or I, I don't know what's going on there exactly. But Duvall is kind of like if Fultz was an even better athlete, kind of, in terms of creativity and in terms of getting into the lane and doing what he wants. As we've seen with Fultz in Philly – that stuff is valuable, but it only has value to a point. And I think with Duval, that's the issue that he runs into and needs to continue to mature beyond that. I hadn't made that comparison in my head, but it's interesting. And and we got a little bit more background actually on Fultz, but right before we recorded this, that he had his shoulder drained and that yeah. that's a part of it that he's hurt. But there's a lot more. We, we'll need to hear a lot more and see. What uh, I mean, means. look, like I would like to believe that. And, and to be honest, like I, I think that at the end of the day, Something had to have happened that, you know, Fultz did not make this decision to just change his jump shot willy nilly. He was a really good jump shooter in college. Um, I'm just always skeptical of agent reports. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I well, think I mean, that, it's think about what their job is. Their job is to make their right. play is to my job is to make the player look good, and they're not under a polygraph or oath, so they can fudge it, they can bend it, just like a lot of other advocate jobs. Right. Exactly. The other broad point before we get into some of the team stuff about this draft that I think is is important for people who don't follow college or prospects closely to understand is just how many bigs there are in this class. So we mentioned, of course, you know, Aiton and Bamba, 
who are just straight bigs. But then there, it's just this army of talented guys, and some of them are going to end up being starters. Some of them are going to end up being rotation players. But guys like Jaron Jackson, Wendell Carter, Me Too from SC, just a couple of those guys. And so you think Mitchell about Robinson. Mitchell Robinson. So what happens is those players are going to take roster spots, and especially a lot of those guys are straight fives. Those players yep. make it on rookie scale contracts. They're totally worth it. You can think about Bam Bam Adebayo, who we both really liked. Those players, even if they're not a starter, you get them for four years for dirt cheap, and then you get match rights. And we're seeing bigs that are not start clear starters are getting killed on the restricted market. So there actually is, yep. in a in a weird perverse way, there is actually more value to that because the idea that those players just don't get paid. And so that who gets who goes who moves up who is prioritized and how that affects free agents and how that affects the whole ecosystem is going to be absolutely insane for the 2018 offseason. Oh yeah, the 2018 offseason I have no idea what to even expect just because what I think you would know this better than I do but I believe it's six teams now have max salary cap space, right? It's about that, and it might even be fewer than that now that the Sixers have kind of, it looks like they're going to lock up. You know, they'll be able to clear to about max, but they're not really like, let's say like Paul George max or something like that. Right. And so, yeah, it's going to be very, very few. There also aren't that many guys that are deserving of it. But then the other part to get onto a little bit of a 2018 aside, because I can always do that, is the big, big question with 2018 is if any of these main players change cities, what happens is it basically evaporates the space because the teams that they're leaving do not clear cap space. So LeBron is probably the most obvious example of this. If LeBron James leaves the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Cleveland Cavaliers do not have any cap space. That they probably won't care too much about having immediate cap space because they're not going to be that good, but they won't have it. It's the same thing, obviously, with Isaiah because they're on the same team. It's the same thing with DeMarcus Cousins. It's the same thing with Paul George. So what that means from a practical perspective is my I haven't written it yet, but the new space race piece for the sporting news is going to be at about 300 million, which is already less than it was last year. And guys like Covington are going to cut into that and a few other things that are going to happen. And there are a lot of players, a lot of these teams that I don't expect to squeeze everything out of their space. I mean, a lot of that money is tied up in like the Chicago Bulls and the Indiana Pacers. I don't know that those teams are going to spend all their money. So what happens is that's going to dry up so fast. And then basically you're talking mid-level exception money. And those teams should be, I mean, those players and their agents should be absolutely terrified. Like if I'm Nerland's Noel, I'm not sleeping at all right now because part of the like, that, that was the worst handled free agency decision of this offseason. Right. And the other problem with Nerlens Noel is he has less leverage on the Mavericks than the Mavericks do on him because there are other centers on this market. Not only DeMarcus Cousins, who I think is a wonderful fit for where they're going, that he would be just a fun, fun guy. But theoretically, if they wanted to go a little bit more, not necessarily win now, but go in a different direction, their old friend DeAndre Jordan's going to be on the market again. And yep. so... If they're Noel's be like, hey, I want to get my money or whatever could do with that, it's like, we got other guys. We're good. And Dallas, depending on how they do this year, you know, maybe they're gonna be in the in the mix for some of these elite bigs. And they might choose to draft at another position because they think they can get one. But all of these centers, basically all of the centers in this entire free agent class, restricted, unrestricted, that aren't, you know, at the level of like, let's say Joel Embiid or something like that. And obviously now he's not going to be in the market because he signed with the Sixers. But all of them are going to struggle because none of them have any leverage. 
Well, yeah, you, the, the fascinating guys to me, too, are Marcus Smart, you know, Jabari Parker, Aaron Gordon. I don't know that there's going to be any teams out there. Maybe the Bulls will be willing to, like, just take a shot on a young restricted free agent like that and drive up market value. But, like, for them, I'm trying to figure out, like, what their marketplace looks like. I think it's kind of tricky right now. Especially with the ones that, like Clint Capella, where you fully expect that their current team is going to match. Like, why right. Why is a team going to, A, they have to wait to use their space until then, because even though the CBA purportedly tried to fix the, the, the moratorium issue with restricted free agents, it absolutely did not. Because what they did is they allowed guys to sign offer sheets during the moratorium, but the counter on the team matching doesn't start until after the moratorium, which means it doesn't matter. Like Dumbest that, thing in the world. It's unbelievable that they thought that was going to work. But so you're right. Marcus Smart is another example of that. Jabari Parker is an example of that. And well, then the, You know who's a really interesting one that kind of fits into both things that we're talking about is Yusuf Nurkic. Uh-huh. Nurkic and Rodney Hood are the other two guys for me where it's like they're good players, they're intriguing, but they both have red flags that could get them pushed down on other teams' lists as well as the fact that both guys, you would expect their current teams to match on them. So yeah, I mean, think about, so I was talking about 300 million and that a lot of that money is tied up in mid-level exception type money. You know, there's just that the mid-levels went up. And so, you know, 8 million times 10 is 80 million. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that sort of a thing is there just aren't that many slots available and there are players above them. You know, we don't know if Paul George is going to stay in Oklahoma City or not. We don't know if Chris Paul is going to stay in Houston or not. But those types of guys are going to be heard from first and it's going to be absolutely bananas. And another, just while we're on this topic, a guy who's, if he plays as well as he did last year, is an unquestioned max player, but who's going to make the offer sheet is Jokic. Like, Jokic is awesome. He's unbelievable. But is a team going to do that? But with Jokic, maybe he's the one that that a team like Indiana or Chicago, who just isn't probably going to use all their space, just says, hey, we'll build some goodwill with their agent. Why not do it? I think that he might be the guy who gets that offer. And maybe they cycle through one or two guys, like Aaron Gordon could be another one like that. There are a couple. But that's a big risk to take because all it takes is one or two players saying yes to those teams to make it impossible. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think Jokic is probably just going to sign a max with Denver immediately. Like, I, My guess is Denver just comes correct and says, yeah, or, okay, we're or close you. to it. Or maybe they do something like it starts at max money and then it's flat and then maybe they turn it around a little bit so that the luxury tax money is that, you know, like something like that. Yeah, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's close enough. Kind of like what I was done as an extension, but what Clay Thompson did or, mm-hmm. you know, a situation like that where it's it's close to max. Maybe it's a little bit different. Yeah. And, Lillard's is like that, isn't it? Like Lillard isn't exactly on the max. He's on like the started max and then flattens or I something. I think it's right? actually CJ that's on something like that. But it's what. But anyway, there are there are a series of, of examples of things like that. And yeah, it's, it's going to be a crazy free agency. And then how this strong rookie class fits into it is going to be huge. And so there there are kind of two other big boxes that I wanted to talk about before we end. And we'll, we'll make both of them quicker just because we've already had a wonderful conversation that is as lasted as they often do. I honestly, like I haven't noticed how long this has gone. Is it like what, like an hour and 20 minutes? Yeah, I think we're at something like that. And so what the big question that I like to have on this podcast at the beginning of every year, and you're a great person to ask it is <laughs> for somebody who is more into the NBA, but likes to know what's going on in college what are the teams or, you know, conferences, if that's what's relevant, that they should be keeping an eye on? I would say that, the, I mean, obviously Kentucky 
because if you watch Kentucky, you're going to get Michael Porter. You're going to get isn't um, isn't Robert Williams in the SEC? Robert Williams, you'll get you'll get Colin Sexton, and you'll be seeing those guys play against NBA caliber athletes, even if the Kentucky guys right. aren't high level picks this year. Absolutely, and you know Kentucky has some guys like they have Hamdu Diallo, they have Shea Gilgis Alexander, who mm-hmm. is you know kind of the sneaky guy right now that. You know, NBA teams are talking about bubbling like a little bit underneath the surface who they think might break out a little bit. You know, they have Jared Vanderbilt and PJ Washington. And I think guys that in many years would think of themselves as one and dones. One and Knox. Or is, or is he a Duke? Kevin Knox. Yeah, I'm sorry. Kevin Knox is really good too. Kevin Knox might be the best out of all of them. But yeah, like those kind of guys that are really, really interesting to watch. They're super, super athletic this year. I would look at Duke, obviously, as well. Marvin Bagley, Grayson Allen, Trayvon Duvall, um, all really, really good players. Uh, Wendell Carter as well is a guy that could go in the lottery this year. If you watch Duke, you're going to get Bruce Brown and Lonnie Walker at Miami. Are we going to talk about sleepers at some point? Yeah, I, I know you like that, so we'll talk about that. Yeah, kind of guys that aren't getting a crazy amount of attention right now or guys that I think might be a little bit undervalued. Yeah, I, I would watch them. You'll also – I'm trying to think of what other uh, what other ACC – prospects there are this year you kind of just have to watch duke for duke um tyus battle you'll get i'm trying to think if there's any other like major acc guys but yeah like this this year is just so open that it's difficult to kind of lock down i would also mention usc mm-hmm. is one of these teams because they have chemezi metu they have benny boatwright who's draftable they have d'anthony melton is a guy that a lot of advanced analytic models are a really big fan of because he provides so much value at such a young age in a variety of different roles. He ticks a lot of different boxes. Um, if you watch them, you'll get Arizona where you have DeAndre Ayton, you have Brandon Randolph, you have um, Alonzo Trier, you have Emmanuel Acott, who's a future draft pick, you know, just, just a lot of different uh, really, really good players. Raleigh Alkins, once he comes back from injury as well in the, Big 10, I would mention Michigan State, but you might be able to catch Michigan State at like another point in the year when they play one of their ridiculous out-of-conference teams. Michigan State has both Jaron Jackson and Miles Bridges, both of whom, you know, potential lottery picks this year, potential top 20 picks this year. Yeah, I, I think that those are the teams that I would really point out. I think those would be the four. You know, if if you need to catch like, Big 12, I would probably stick to Kansas if you need to catch. Yeah, I mean, if you have to catch like out of league team or out of like the power five teams or the Big East, if you have to catch the Big East, I'd probably stick to Villanova. Yeah, no, I I think that you can get by really this year um, by watching those three really schools and kind of filling in along the edges as more kids kind of break out because. This is something that we haven't kind of talked about yet, but this year is a little bit more open after you get to the top, get through the top like 10 or 11 guys in this class. Like, I, I think some people are going to think of Chemezi Metu as a potential lottery pick. I would bet some teams have him as a second round pick. Um, I would bet Troy Brown is a guy that a lot of teams have in the lottery. I would bet he's a guy that a lot of teams are just way too worried about athletically. Uh, Hamadou Diallo has significant concerns in terms of his jump shot. Mitchell Robinson is not going to be playing college basketball this year. There, there's just like a lot of really big questions. And due to the 
exodus of players over the course of the last two years, it's really wide open for a lot of younger players to step up and kind of grow into a role. Like last year, I think it was something like I had maybe like 21, 22 guys in my mock draft at the time. Uh, whenever I publish a mock draft the day after the draft every year. So I published my 2017 mock draft on what I guess it was probably June 24th, 2016. I think I got 22 of those guys in the 2017 actual first round this year. The number is probably going to be more like 13 or 14. Like it's just so much more open that I think it's going to invite a lot of competition among players. And I think it's going to invite a lot of wide ranges of opinions among scouts among which players are dominant and which players are not. That's super exciting because those years, while it's a pain for somebody like me who watches less less basketball, though I do focus on the elite guys, and I also want to mention two specific games and dates for NBA fans to watch. and be, It's in the non-conference schedule, which is part of the reason I'm doing this. November 14th and November 24th. November 14th, Michigan State plays Duke in the Champions Classic in Chicago. And November 24th, Duke plays Texas probably in i think it's in portland there's a tournament up there assuming they don't lose. i will be there so those are great times to see not only duke guys but to see the guys at michigan state and texas bomba and then bridges and and jackson seeing those guys against elite competition so try to pencil those in like honestly like those are going to be nights that either i will record those games or i will watch those live and watch the other and watch the nba stuff delayed because yep. you don't like that's the difference between the nba and college is in the nba you can learn something almost every night and in college you can but it's a lot more muted you get yep. so few opportunities to see nba caliber players against nba caliber players that it is a wonderful thing and it's something actually i hope that the field house it might be a good idea i don't know if it would be cross promoted on the nba stream to just be like hey watch this game like you know for non-college people because there are those that are they're probably like 10 or 15 a year where it's just like hey this is a game worth watching i think that is an excellent idea yeah hopefully you can do it maybe maybe i can even get a consulting credit on it get an executive producer credit on a piece series i don't think that really exists but anyway before we move on, I want to tell you all a little bit about Greats. Greats is an awesome shoe company, stylish, comfortable sneakers sold at a great price, Brooklyn's first sneaker company, and I like that I can tell you about it from personal experience because I knew a little bit about Greats beforehand, but how I really got familiar with them was trying out their shoes. And so I got the Royales in Nero, which is the the kind of the leather style, and they're beautiful, they're striking, they're distinctive, which are an unusual combination for a shoe really in in this day and age to have something that looks really different. And I have worn them a few different times. People go, wow, what's that? And so I get to tell them that it's great. And there are so many different styles. So it's not just, Hey, they make one shoe. That's really, really cool. And they're incredibly comfortable to walk in. The material is, is excellent. They're some of the best made shoes that I've ever had. And I try to treat myself with shoes as something that I really do value. And I also really like that the way that you can try out greats is you go to greats.com greats and then you use the real GM promo code and what you get is you get 15% off a checkout. 15% is a wonderful discount, but as all of you know probably with shoes, you need to make sure that you get it exactly right. And part of what greats is offering with this is no risk returns and an exchange policy. So I was fortunate enough that the first thing I got 
was perfect. I didn't have to make any modifications, but the fact that you have that with you, so you get that 15% discount. And if it's not perfect, if it's not everything you want it to be, then you can try it out until you get the right thing. And I'm confident that you will find it. As I said, the Royales in the Nero color style, I think they're really cool, but there are a wealth of different other options for men and women. So take a look at their site, really go through it, spend some quality time, and they have slip-on shoes, they have lace-ups, minor lace-ups, and you'll find something that you really do love. And so, again, greats.com, real GM promo code, 15% off. Classic, stylish, comfortable shoes, snowed at a great price. The other kind of thing that I wanted to talk about, and I don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of the investigation itself, the, you know, the ongoing, I'm sure people have heard well, about before it Before we get now. there, can I talk about sleepers real quick? Yeah, you want to do, you want to, you, I, like. I, I was thinking we would end with sleepers. We can go that way. That's fine. Well, it just kind of fits about in it. If you're thinking more about it, let's we're do talking it. about. Yeah. Let's do it. I really like Lonnie Walker at Miami. Okay. I've gotten really good reports on him, you know, personally and, you know, three and D guy kind of, but six, four with super long arms, uh, really, really good athlete can shoot from three already can create with the ball. Coming off of a torn meniscus, which is a little bit worrisome, but I really, really like his skill set. I think he's going to be a good NBA player. DeAnthony Melton's a guy that I really like. I'm super high on Tyus Battle. Like he'll probably be in my top 30 to start the year. Six foot five, six foot six wing, good length, can create off the bounce. Jump shot was a little bit more, a little bit more developed than I thought it would be coming into the year. Jacob Evans at Cincinnati is a guy that I like as a potential three and D guy. Jonathan Williams at Gonzaga. Already one of the best defenders in college basketball. Can step away and shoot a little bit, but mechanically he's going to have some work to do. Overall, good good prospect, not like an elite level prospect. Terrence Davis at Mississippi is a guy, six foot four, six foot nine wingspan, can create. Tough, got to basketball late. Kind of an interesting guy, at least. Uh, Kyrie Thomas, I think, is really underrated. One of the best on ball defenders in college hoops. We've talked before about Nikhil Walker, Nikhil Alexander Walker. My guy, my guy. Yeah, we we both really like him. And we so think does Schmitz. He is yeah. he is on this on the short list of guys that might not be a first round pick that the three of us are all completely on, which makes me think that he's going to rise because he's like he reminds me of Danny Green sometimes, and <laughs> even if he's seventy five percent Danny Green, that's still a clear cut valuable NBA player. Yeah, like I don't I know if he's a one so and done, but I think he will be a first round pick. Um, I would I honestly like it's depending on how this year works. If I were a team in like the 20s, just promise him, get him in, just get him in the draft and you'll be happy with it. Yeah, I mean, teams tried to do I think I don't know if teams tried to do that. Bruce Brown last year because Bruce Brown kind of declared that he was going to stay early. But teams really like Bruce Brown last mm-hmm. year and I think would have done something similar. But he ended up deciding to stay. I like Bruce Brown. I think he's like a top 20 guy in this class. Tyler Hall at Montana State. Kind of a skinny frame, but I have a good number on this one. He is the only player in the last quarter century outside of Stephen Curry, who as a sophomore or younger averaged 23 points per game on a 63% true shooting percentage or better. Unbelievable level scorer, unbelievable level level shooter, floor spacer, all that jazz. Really, really good. Chandler Hutchison is a guy that I've gotten pretty good reports from. And Ultimate, ultimate sleeper as a senior that I really like is Gary Clark out of Cincinnati. Tough, really good defender, former defensive player of the year in the AAC. Really good off-ball cutter, really good, smart player, plays tough. He's long, plays hard. Uh, The key is going to be the jump shot. 
He's hit them in the past, didn't hit them at all last year. But one of those guys who can genuinely guard one through five on the floor and kind of fits the way that the NBA is going. Nice. Uh, mostly this is an excuse to say his name, but I think I remember you really liking Vasilis, oh. uh, Charles Papoulos. Harold Papoulos. Harold Papoulos is my guy. I don't know if he's uh, – I don't know that he's necessarily an NBA player, but he's a guy that I would definitely look at stashing. Arnoldus Kolboka is a guy I've been talking about now, too, for two years. He was like six foot seven, six foot eight when I started talking about him. He's grown to six ten, so he's kind of grown out of being a wing, and now he's more of like a stretch four big, but he shoots the piss out of the ball. Like, he is really just a ridiculous shooter. Needs to kind of develop the frame. He's super, super skinny, but I think he has a shot. I would take him late first, early second, depending on how his year goes. Playing for a new team, I believe, in Italy right now. One more guy, Kobe McEwen out at Utah State. Last year, there were four freshmen to average 14 and a half points, five rebounds, three assists per game. They were Josh Jackson, Markel Fultz, Lonzo Ball, and Kobe McEwen out of Utah State. So I'm a big fan. Awesome. I, will, I, I would say I'll keep an eye on those guys, but it's more probably going to be following people like you and, and all the other great draft people and just kind of keeping tabs on that. Because the fun thing about a draft that's more open is some of those players will really rise up and there is room to, to rise this year, which is really exciting. And so now we'll get into the, the last kind of topic I wanted to get, I wanted to discuss is not the investigations themselves. People can do the reading, the reporting that's out there and everything else on that. But how the FBI investigations that are probably going to grow in scope affect this draft and future drafts. Yeah. So like, Oh, my cat just yelled at me. Um, so I think that both of us agree that we don't really give a shit about the investigation from the perspective of how it affects college basketball teams in general. Like the reason that I, you know, you hear stuff throughout the industry and, most of the time why I don't report it is that a, I don't have a means of proving it, but B I don't even chase it most of the time because like, I think it ends up hurting the kid more than it helps the competitive balance of college basketball. And that's not something I'm okay doing as a person. So at the end of the day, like I'm fine with these kids getting paid and getting money as long as they aren't being exploited by adults such as Chuck person, who I think was rightfully arrested for, you know, just flat out lying to a kid. And what I will say though, is that I think that an important aspect of this is that I think there's a chance that it's going to quickly allow Adam silver to make the changes that he wants to the one and done. Cause he can kind of, you know, make the argument based on corruption that you really just need to not be allowing these kids to be influenced from universities and things like that. I I would not be surprised if one of the major things that comes from this is kids are now going to be allowed to go pro out of high school again. Uh, I I would imagine that it won't happen until like the 2020 draft, but I I think that that's going to be a very real very likely outcome. One other hope that I have for it is to create some sort of exception within the now G League structure for these players where it's actually it's not yeah. financially close enough and just just if if they want to keep in the age limit which I think is stupid and immoral if they want to keep it in then pay them a little bit more money and just say they're not draft eligible. You can totally do that and it runs into a little bit of a problem 
with the structure of the G League. But the other resolution there is it wouldn't take that much money for the NBA to basically make the equivalent of a barnstorming team, except that they would just be a G League team. Put them in a market that's a little bit more stable where they can where they can do it and just have invest however many hundreds of thousands you have to into the coaching staff. And all of a sudden, you've built something and you avoid a lot of the other crap that they're doing. And then eventually, when you get the age limit right, you do that. And I would actually maintain that team and that structure even after the age limit has changed. And so if a guy washes out of college or whatever, you have that team and it's just a few extra jobs. Yeah, no, I I, I would like that for sure. I think that the biggest hurdle to that in the short term is getting 30 D-League teams or G-League teams. If we can get there first, I think that we can then hopefully get to a point where we can increase salaries a little bit and maybe make the G League a slightly more realistic developmental atmosphere. Because right now the biggest issue with the G League is that a lot of the players there are 27-year-olds who are gunning for their last shot who aren't worried about the development of other players. And in a sport like basketball, so like people often ask, like, why can't the NBA do something like what Major League Baseball has done with the levels of single A, double A, triple A, and kind of letting players develop there? The difficulty there is that in terms of development, a singular player on a basketball team can affect outcomes to such a disproportionate degree is compared to a baseball player that it makes development really, really difficult because NBA teams are always going to want players on their G league teams that can step into the NBA sooner rather than later so that they have, you know, just ready-made replacements in case of injury, but it's going to be really hard to have their cake and eat it too. In a circumstance where these guys are trying to ball out for their last shot while also trying to foster development of younger players who NBA teams might be more committed to than the older, better players. It's just a really unique, difficult kind of structure given the way the basketball works. And it makes it a little bit harder, I think, to make it a realistic developmental atmosphere. And that's exactly why I would put the young guys on one team and not have it go in that structure and put in. And so you basically change the incentive structure by just man by manually just shifting it and doing it in that way, as opposed to. So so are you saying each team would have two G League teams, basically? No, I'm saying you add a 31st team or 32nd, you know, however many you need and have those guys exclusively on those teams. And they play against guys, the 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 like older the, guys? the non-draft eligible guys there are too many of those guys though well have, i mean a lot of like, them won't choose extra. to do it i'm sorry i don't think a lot of those guys are going to choose to go to the g league do you i mean more of them do it than you'd think you know what i mean like the idea of staying at home and getting paid eighty thousand dollars by the time you get your fifty thousand dollar camp guarantee as well as your g league salary that can sometimes be more appealing than making $125,000 in Europe right now, right? Whether or not it's all a value-based system for people, right? Um, but if you look at G League rosters right now, you're going to see a ton of players like a Vander Blue, who is, I think, on a two-way deal with the Lakers right now, but a similar, you know, kind of a borderline player that's been in the G League for a while, who's not really like anyone's prospect necessarily before this year. Guys like Evander Blue, guys like what Mike James could have been if he would have decided to go to the G League for six years before he got his break. I think it's too difficult to just say we can have one or two teams for non-developmental players, I guess. 
that's totally fair. And I think that there's enough flexibility and the money that wouldn't be that high, you know, in terms of staff and everything like that. Like, obviously, it would cost something, but there are ways that they can do that. And of course, it would be a PR just bonanza for the league to say, hey, look, we're taking this focus and putting it on young players. And I think those games would actually sell tickets and you could probably get some TV revenue off those, too. But the mm-hmm. other point, I made... it's it's harder to do that than you'd think. I think that's true. But I think it's just it's a mitigation of cost. I don't think it's you know it's it's not going to they're not going to be profitable. It's just to to you know to reduce the bill a little bit. But the, right. the, the, it also ties in with and granted this fits in a lot better with my idea of not having the draft and having allotments, which is actually something apparently Mark Cuban floated a version like that and the owners hated it. And I've never said my idea would ever happen. But something that I've advocated for years. And you probably, for insurance reasons, probably would not allow the players to be on the floor, but would be an opening up of the process, like with 10 days or something like that, for players who are planning on declaring for the draft. And so basically then what the idea is, is that giving opening the doors in March and April to these players that can see what it's like to be in an NBA locker room, to see what it's like in NBA practice, instead of having to wait because that's information that is super valuable to them that for whatever reason the NBA just hasn't opened those doors yet. Yeah, again, but you can't you basically I, can't have them play because then the insurance would be a nightmare. Right, like that that's the issue. Like I, I can't ever see that happening just because the bill to, you know, have insurance is just way too much. Like if as soon as one of those players gets hurt, it's like a $12 million insurance outlay. But like, you, you know, know are t- do teams ever just like, let's say, I think I, I'm trying to think of a team that is bad, but has their has their stuff together. Like the Sixers probably would have been there last year to just say, hey, you know, like Miles Bridges. Well, he, he ended up being an unfortunate example. Josh Jackson, like, just come check us out. Just come come there for a couple days before our season ends and just see what it's like. Hmm. Kind of like well, NBA, NBA teams can't have contact with. See, and that, that I guess maybe that's the rule that I yeah. think should be changed is just to just to open that open up that structure just so they have a little bit of an idea. I mean, who's getting hurt by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Once once players declare for the draft, you know, I, I think that it would be beneficial. You, you could run into some cap circumvention issues. I well, would you imagine could, you could really run into some cap circumvention issues if you abolished the draft and did that. But, well, but, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's your ultimate goal here. You want to abolish the draft. Well, it's one of them. But I, I think that there's a value to those players no matter what. Like, I think it's something that would help either way just so they can get a get a sense. I mean, because that's something I because I, I'm an NBA guy that when I talk to players a lot is there is this advantage for the players who kind of know what they're getting into and have a really good idea because, yeah, mentorship is around and all that kind of stuff. But NBA players, you know, they're busy once the NBA season starts. There's only so much they can do. But so you see this with guys like Clay Thompson, Tim Hardaway Jr., Steph, like that they, they, they have a much better idea of what life is like as an NBA player than a lot of other guys do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, going back to like abolishing the draft, I think it's I think that morally it's the right thing to do. I also think that the biggest key here with the draft is that getting players under team control for what is likely eight years if you're a good basketball player is kind of BS from a moral perspective, right? Um, yeah, that that's true, but I'm I'm more willing I, I, to, to fudge on that if players well, to, have more agency in terms of where they go. Right, and that's kind of what I was going to say a little bit of. Like, I, I guess that like you could make it so that you sign different 
length contracts. There isn't like a set scale in terms of contract. I think that would be a really interesting idea. I, I think that it's problematic in a lot of ways, as the NFL recently showed as the explosion of money entered the NFL, just how tough that can be. But from a moral perspective versus a you know practical perspective, there's a lot of different stuff I would like to see. But the practicality of a lot of this stuff just ends up with me thinking the draft is the best kind of option for all of it. Yeah, that's fair. And and again, this is more pie in the sky and, and that, that you and I enjoy talking about it, but there is that fundamental issue. So I guess the way that I'll end this is more of an open-ended question of just, so if somebody who doesn't really follow the draft, but is more of an NBA fan, is there anything that we haven't talked about that would be good for them to know as we get into the start of the college season? You know, I, I don't know that there is. I, I would say that you know, if you're a bad team, I would be hoping for a top four pick or a top five pick. You know, that, that goes without saying. But particularly this year, I think there's a bit of a drop off at that level. If I was an NBA team that was kind of on the cusp of the playoff hunt versus, you know, considering tanking and dropping down to that like seven, eight, nine range in terms of draft spots, I would probably just go for the playoffs this year uh, based on what I've seen from this class so far. I, I would be willing to just kind of deal with that. Like I don't really see any sort of game breaking talent that's going to be around there or around that level yet. Maybe that'll change as we kind of get through the draft process and more of these players mature and improve. But you know, I, I think that that might be something interesting, but overall I think we got a lot of it. Also, this is the last year before lottery reform kicks in. And so there is a real incentive to being at the absolute bottom. If you think of this as a four or five person draft, guaranteeing a top four pick is a very, very good thing. Even though these players are drastically different, there is a value to that. And not only is there necessarily a value to, hey, we could get a really good guy, but as a trade asset, let's say you have the fourth pick and you have a center you like and Aiton's the fourth guy. Well, somebody else is going to really want him if he's as good as we think he might be. And so... This year, I think it might be where we basically that setting it a year out makes it actually more likely to see tanking. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I will say this, too. I don't really have specifics on it just because I don't really remember all of the details off the top of my head because I'm so busy and it's a year out and I just haven't like gotten a chance to fully memorize the deal yet. But I hated the lottery reform. I, I remembered thinking that it, it was just a worthless change for the sake of making a publicity statement. And I kind of wanted to mention that. It, 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 I don't think that it's at the perfect numbers. I never really, I need to go through it with a real fine tooth comb and also compare it because through my Warriors book, I've been writing actually a lot about that 93 draft, the last one before they changed it and why they, why they did that because the Warriors moved up and got Weber, the, Yep. Magic jumped all the way up and got Penny when they already had Shaq. And, you know, there there are these downside risks to what they did. The The part of it that I understand is making it a smaller difference between having the worst record, the second and the third. That part of that mentality. But you didn't have to make it exactly the same. If it was 1% different or 2% different, it would have been fine. And so by lowering it to basically the number three level for everybody, there are going to be some crazy swings. And then that gets into this weird morality of like, what do you see the point of it for the draft? Is it is it to make to an opportunity for the worst teams to get better? Because this is going to actually, it might not create super teams, but it's going to create some better teams because there will be, you know, the eighth worst record jumping to number one. That is yeah. a much larger change. And I think we're going to see more of that now. 
And you can reasonably argue that that's a bad thing, and you can reasonably argue that's a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Let's let's end it there because, I, like I said, like I don't have enough details on the yeah, exact stuff that we'll, I would want we'll to change. At some point, you and I will probably spend like – or Nate and I will probably do this too – spend like six hours on it going through the math and just being like, okay, here's how I feel about yeah. it. But it's going to – it's. But there's so much to do right now that we can wait on it for a little while. Yeah, I mean, over the course of the next year, that'll be something that's important. But August, not August of twenty, August of 2018. Get ready because that's when we'll have an opinion on lottery odds. <laughs> yeah. Well, as always, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at the Athletic. The Athletic has a a whole college basketball site now and you can check it out lots of great stuff of course sam and then variety of writers talking about college it's it's a, been a blast to have them as a part of the family it's something that i always wanted to have and something that we talked about a long time back in the day i talked about it with the brass happy it's it's really there now you can of course follow sam on twitter at sam underscore vicini s-a-m underscore v-e-c-e-n-i-e you can listen to his game theory podcast which is excellent really do enjoy it and this is a fun time with basketball. I'm trying to figure out exactly where I want to go next. I try not to overreact to the first couple weeks if you want to hear the more immediate reaction stuff. Of course, you can listen to the Dunked On Basketball podcast that I do with Nate Duncan. You can watch the Twitter NBA show, and you can listen to Warriors Watch, which is my Warriors-specific podcast. I just released a new one with Tim Bontemps that I recorded tonight on Warriors Raptors and a few other things. So you can check all of that out in various forms. And, of course, if you want to, if you want to support me, you can buy my book, 100 Things Warriors Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It covers the entire history from when they moved to San Francisco to now, and a little bit on Philadelphia as well, because I thought that's a part of the story, but it, it does really focus on the Bay Area years. And it's it was a labor of love for me. It's a huge, huge project, the biggest thing I've ever done. And I think that people who aren't Warriors fans will really enjoy it, especially if you if you like my work. It's different than a lot of my work because it's it's you know the way that it's self contained chapters and more historical. But I think it brought something really great out of me, so I'm excited about that. Haven't worked out all the logistics in terms of signed copies. If you don't live in the Bay Area, I am going to do signings, but I'm in the process. So check out my Twitter and things like that because I think that now it's, I'm working on getting the packaging and the shipping all together but I I will be doing that it's just getting making sure all the dot all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and making sure the publisher's cool with it and everything like that. So that is in process. So those are the ways that you can support me beyond supporting the show. How you can support the show is leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player if you're choosing, subscribe Download every episode. I hope you listen to them all, but make sure you download them. Downloads are still the gold standard in our business. And then just word of mouth, telling other people you like the show. I am fortunate enough to do a lot of different things, but there are still people who, even who know me, who don't know that I do this kind of long-form show that would really enjoy it. So that sort of thing can be a big help, and spreading the word is always important. If you have feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com, at Danny LaRue on Twitter. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. And then the other absolutely gargantuan thing you can do is check out our sponsors. Harry's.com, back on with us. Harry's.com slash RealGM. You can get that free shave kit. All you have to do is pay for shipping. It's awesome. I'm a huge fan of the shave gel. I, I went through all that before, but it's still completely true. DraftKings, you can try Daily Fantasy Basketball. I am in the process of doing that for the first time, which is very exciting. If you're new to it, you can go into more of the beginner casual leagues. If you're really into it, you can still do it. You go to DraftKings.com, 
use the real GM promo code and you can get into some big money contests. It's very exciting to have them on board. And then greats, greats, fantastic shoes, wide variety of styles. The GREATS.com, the real GM promo code gets you 15% off. And the ex- return exchange policy is huge because with shoes, as many of you know, you need to make sure that you're really thrilled with it. I got mine on the first try, but hopefully you do too. But if you need to, you can buy with the comfort that if it's not perfect, you can find what you want. So thank you so much for listening. I will, of course, do a Real Jam Radio next week. Don't know exactly what it's going to be on, but I will do one. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.